Hello, the internet, and welcome to the Screen and Needle podcast, where my compadres and I get to select one film, one album, and a top five list each week to be reviewed and discussed over a pint or two. I hope you'll join us for a drink and some daft chat about pop culture. My name is Will Holden, and today I am joined by Mark Wall. How are you doing, buddy? Yeah, good, mate. Good. Excellent. And I'm also joined by Andy Malburn. How are you, Chief? Yeah, hi, man. Yeah, I'm okay. Very good. We're also joined today by our special guest, Louis Smith. Hi, Louis. How's it going? Yeah, not bad. Not bad. Thank you. Wunderbar. We start, as always, with the film, and the film is your choice this week, Louis. It is The Vast of Night from 2019. It stars Sierra McCormack, Jake Horowitz, Bruce Davis, Gail Cronauer, and I'll give you the IMDb blurb as per usual. One night in New Mexico in the late 1950s, a switchboard operator and radio DJ discover a strange audio frequency which could change the future forever. This is WOTW Radio in Cayuga, New Mexico, and this is the news for the hour. Now, what would you like to tell us about yourself? I don't know. Well, aren't you like some big science girl? Tell me about science. Edward, it's Faye. I'm the sound came through the board and interrupted your radio show. What does it sound like? What's going on, Everett? Louis, tell us about your film. Science fiction film, isn't it? Well, um, yep. set in the 50s. <laughs> um, I thought it was pretty good. Um, yeah. Is that it? Did it, come, did it come from a, like a, did you just come across this film, watch it and think it was Ace or was it something recommended to you or how did you kind of come across it? I think I just found it on the internet. Well, as, um, you know, probably the least explicit found film i found on the internet in many months but um <laughs> i enjoyed it anyway no um yeah I th- um yeah i think i just found it on the internet and i'm a sucker for science fiction of any type and okay. i think a review i read of it mentioned a long tracking shot at which point i was like oh it's my two favorite <laughs> sci-fi um, long tracking shot on go. board uh, that was it so and it was happened to be you know cheap to rent from planet bezos so that and um and here we are i thought it was pretty good did everyone watch yeah. it yeah <laughs> yeah we did mark's quiet so maybe not <laughs> yeah no I, I i watched it i kind of enjoyed it um i didn't love it though i can it's an interesting like one to have picked so i can completely see why it would have resonated with you and you would have enjoyed it i did kind of enjoy it but I feel like it's also kind of slight in many respects, like not not too much happens. And that's kind of it, what's good about it as well at the same time. But yeah, broadly speaking, I thought it was pretty all right. I kind of agree. Like, 
I think it was a really like I think it was really well executed. Like I think a lot of things about the film is were really good that we could get into later. But I think it was kind of on a flawed premise a little bit, and that it's it's kind of it's built as this sort of sci-fi mystery, but there's never any kind of red herrings or anything else presented as a possibility for the mystery. Like you have this mysterious sound that you immediately, because of all the references to you know the sort of like it's like a nostalgic sci-fi, isn't it? Like loads of references to Twilight Zone and you know War of the Worlds and stuff like that. But you're never given any sort of suggestion that it might be anything else. So you kind of just—I was never really invested in the storyline. But then, like loads of it, I really liked. I liked the feel of it, and yeah, there's the actual execution of it was really good. So yeah, enjoyable. But I have criticisms. I think for those reasons, I'm probably going a little bit hotter. I really liked a lot of the kind of direction and uh, cinematography choices. I thought the score was pretty cool. It had like a few specific themes that reappeared, but I thought they were all like pretty ace. I think it was quite tense and pretty well paced. I always like a film that's a good solid 90 minutes. I didn't have, uh, I didn't read anything about it before going in or watch any trailers or anything. So I didn't know what to expect. I think in retrospect, you're right. Like the sci-fi themes are laid on pretty thick from early doors. But there was definitely a while where I thought it could be more like supernatural. It could lean into a horror vibe. Like I say, looking back, I think it's quite clearly leaning strongly into sci-fi. But things like Twilight Zone and stuff leaned into both horror and sci-fi. It's just that I was never sort of invested enough that I thought about it that much as I was watching it, I guess. Particularly when you, is it Billy, the guy who uh, first calls into the station, when he sort mm-hmm. of presents this idea of like working with the military and building like a bunker for something that sounds very Area 51-esque, you never present it. From that point, you never present it with any other, like I think they mention like the Russians and communism at one point, but... It's sort yeah. of a throwaway thing that just fits the decade, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and you never really presented anything else apart from the kind of the sci-fi reveal that happens at the end. I don't think that's unfair, but um, I think the way it was made really like sucked me in. So as you mentioned, that story that Billy tells and intermittently goes between uh, the two main characters uh, that is Faye Crocker, played by Sierra McCormack, and Everett Sloan by Jake Horowitz. And when Billy's kind of telling his story, it first shows a wireless radio and then fades completely to black. And I, I, uh, I found that like really focused on his voice. I found that really quite gross in that bit. And although I agree with you that I don't think the story is particularly surprising or groundbreaking i think i really enjoyed kind of how it was made i enjoyed the the i guess we've talked about it before like the idea of style over substance and i think in this case style absolutely won out for me yeah i think um i think i agree with pretty much everyone on all counts in this case really like mark made the really good point of it being slight you know i'd sort of rephrase it as it being sort of small in scope but as a positive really like 
I think it did what it set out to do really, really, really well. And whether it lands with you will be as to whether what it set out to do was enough for you, if you know what I mean. I thought it worked really well as a little set of set pieces, like the two big monologues in it, both being really engrossing, that being the phone call to the radio station and the rather moving one at the end with the, you know, woman who you could read as either deranged old lady or you know person who's actually seen something no one else has and the reveal at the end deciding which of those things she was i liked how that sort of the characters could be cast in different lights based on what actually transpired but apart from that really i just thought that i i just really liked the relationship between the two main characters the script between them it had an early ryan johnson vibe to it in a lot of ways in the um sort of how how on the nose the script was sort of as a period piece yeah but yeah i totally agree it was um i don't think it ever pretended it was going to go anywhere but where it was where it went at the end um and it was more following these two kids who want to escape somewhere as they sort of well eventually kind of do so it's interesting isn't it how it like as you as you said with the dialogue between those two which i agree was like both of those were pretty likable characters but it throws you right into there i found within the first 10 minutes obviously like it's got this weird like contrast throughout the whole movie where there's all these like kinetic tracking like shots where the camera is following people and moving all over the place and then it that's contrasted with the bits where it just goes dead still and it's just a shot mm-hmm. on a character's face and everything which i quite liked that that mix really works but yeah, I found in the first 10 minutes, and this is not a bad thing, but I was having to pay attention, like big time, just to work out, you know, because their, their conversation is very naturalistic and it's very of its time as well. And obviously they've got like the Southern accents and all this. So there was just, for me, it was just like, okay, what, what is going on? What are they talking about? And then it, it does settle down. But yeah, it was quite, quite interesting. I just chucked you straight in there and it, it it becomes quickly apparent what the situation is but mm-hmm. yeah i agree yeah there is definite definite comparisons to be drawn with uh early ryan johnson for sure yeah i agree got some brick vibes and i also agree but i also enjoyed how it just kind of drops you in their world and slowly feeds you just the tidbits that you need to kind of understand what's going on i did find like everett in the first 10 minutes or so really hard to just understand just what he was saying i didn't really know but i was getting the gist of the uh of the situation early on as well i didn't i thought it was like shot really dark i'm sure on purpose as a choice but i didn't i wasn't liking it so much i think the fact that it changes up later and goes brighter and and has like a different sort of cinematography style later makes it okay while I was watching it, I was thinking, this is just sort of hard to see. I'd hazard a guess that budgetary concerns were at play. Um, all the exterior shots are very dark, so you yeah. get the feeling maybe they were having to shoot it like that to... They couldn't build the 1950s, I guess. I think that that really works for the sort of vibe of the film, though. You get enough of the world to know that it's set in the 1950s and, you know, the world around it but a huge amount of the film is shot in quite like claustrophobic closed spaces that's quite an important like thing for the sort of feel of the film 
Like I think they, whether that they, was a happy accident or not. It, yeah, um, yeah. Like it I agree, some meaning to sort of the plight of the characters because there's loads of without banging you over the head with it. There's a lot of just little nudges to the idea that these two people are trapped in this small town. Yeah, um, and both looking for a way out of it. So all the the claustrophobic feel of the whole thing until the you know the final shot of or one of the final shots of the whole piece where the camera pans up to the sky and the special effects budget is all used in five seconds and you finally see what's going on, you know, and then there is that release and escape there. Yeah. Whether it was just a fluke or them using their limitations to their advantage. Yeah. um, Worked well for me. I know it's jumping ahead, but as you've referenced the end, I actually could have done without the big money shot. Like, it's not that I thought that it looked particularly bad. I just didn't think it looked good enough that it justified what was probably two-thirds of the budget for the film. <laughs> like, I just, I, don't think, it, I just don't think it necessarily added anything. I kind of could have done without it. <laughs> I think I'd have been satisfied if it were left a mystery. Like, if they... You still could have had the shot of the like camera on the ground and things like that. Like you could have everything else yeah, they sort of subtly hint at. Whereas then they decide to go, yeah, slap yeah, you out, slap you out the face. Yeah, I, I just don't know that I needed it. It's hard to know whether I would have felt frustrated if it was left more ambiguous. You know, a, yeah. a little part of me sort of did a little fist pump when you know yeah it was true all along kind of (laughs) she wasn't a crazy old lady (laughs) but at the same time yeah it's it's certainly the cheaper well not money-wise but creatively it's the cheaper shot to just sort of tie it up with a boat Um, yeah so it's hard to know how you'd feel without seeing the alternative I think there's a lot of folk like it's interesting that it has that big visual thing at the end and obviously it's got the like an almost Sam Raimi, Evil Dead style tracking shot, like the big thing that I think you mentioned, which is incredible, like camera work wise. But for all that stuff, that kind of feels like in there because it's a visual medium and he wants to make use of it. But there's a massive focus on sound and dialogue. And I was wondering whether there's anything more connected to sound that I somehow missed because everything in the movie almost like... You know, the telephone stuff, the radio, like the horn, the tape machine, uh, people ringing in, everything is focused around the sound. And at points, the screen literally blacks out, almost to the point where you're like, has something gone wrong? (laughs) (laughs) Is this intentional? Which obviously was, of course. But yeah, I just wondered, all that focus on the sound and just listening, is is it just, is there anything I've missed there or is it just pretty much just saying, trying to make you listen, I guess. As you know, there are Easter eggs to be found somewhere. Uh, yeah, just like a... Puzzle a, to a solve or something. Yeah, exactly. Is there anything he's trying to say with that at all? Possibly. That's I how he know. gets his rewatches, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I got the impression like it was a film full of those kind of like little tidbits. I was just, yeah, might get on a second viewing, but I can't say I picked up on anything. There's some obvious references in there as well, like like references to other things. You know, the radio station is W-O-T-W. What were the worlds? 
I appreciate that. I didn't spot that one. <laughs> yeah, me neither. Like, good good I was work. Like, huge, there's like a huge neon sign shot of the outside of the radio station. That, that, like, I'm presuming that's a reference to it. Right? Yeah. Well, yeah, I didn't spot that for Natch. Um, I, bet, yeah, there's, that, I bet, bet there's loads. It seems the sort of film that's going to be rife with that kind of stuff. And there are loads of little, um, little throwaway things in there that you feel like if you paid more attention, like what what's with there's the guy they mentioned loads in the first half hour who's who's gone to fix something at the school and someone else didn't turn. You know, there's just funny little I forgot about like, that. Real, real nothing bits of plot <laughs> stuff. And whether it's just um, whether it's just a little bit of world building just to sink you into the the environment, or whether there's there are some little puzzles to be solved. Who knows? Either way, I think it worked for me. Like the the running story about the squirrel chewing the the power cable, and then it becomes something like a possum, or because, like the the yeah. animal changes, and yeah, just that little kind of world building, um, as well, you say. Yeah, I, I, I'd, I'd forgotten about that bit, but thinking back on it now, I mean, that's that's almost like a really nice nudge towards how stories spin from nothing, you know, and these kids who think they're chasing a UFO and could it just be what, you know, a weather balloon? You know, so you feel like maybe that's the little red herrings. It's just trying to seed the idea that this could just be nothing. This could be childish foolishness. And yeah, like you guys said, maybe it'd leave a bit more of a lasting taste if they didn't give you the big reveal at the end. And if you were left to, like you were saying, the shot of the camera on the ground would suffice and then they've gone somewhere, but you're not 100% sure were they, you know, abducted by someone less extraterrestrial and more insidious. I, I guess I just would have liked a little red herring here or there. I, also, I've come in with all the negatives and actually, like, there's loads of positives about it as well. I thought both of the two main people were excellent. Like, the sort of chemistry between them. Like, I really like that early scene where she's got the tape recorder and they're going around, like, basically interviewing people in the cars. It's a great way to set the scene and, like, set your world and also, like, learn a little bit about the characters and the kind of... The writing's really good in that. Like, the banter between them is good. I mean, in the opening, I don't know, maybe 10 or 12 minutes, I don't think... I don't think there's any period where nobody's talking... There's so much script written, and yeah. yeah, I think it's all really good. Like it's it's got a kind of cool rhythm to it, and I mean, I can't say I'd like genuinely absorbed it all because it was so fast. But you get the gist of what they're talking about. Yeah, probably my favourite scene was the like complete counterbalance to that, where it's like it's the like Mabel Blanche like monologue, where she just it's just a still shot focused on her face where she like tells a story for five minutes I yeah, like, yeah, that scene was really engrossing <laughs> yeah yeah I thought it painted a picture brilliantly that scene and without it the film would have been very very light I think it came a bit out of nowhere that monologue and really just put a big splodge of emotion onto the whole thing yeah I think without it that, that the film would have yeah, been on the fail list, I think. Yeah, well, I definitely, definitely brought the emotional core. I think that that scene, 
it turns out actually really, really slowly zooms in on her face. And I only noticed when I was skipping back through to find a specific bit. And on the preview window, you can like see it stepping in. And I watched it again, and it's just incredibly slow zoom on her face. But as you say, in contrast to like how snappy it is, um, I think it really works. Also sticking with the things that I think were really positive about this film, there are loads of different sort of types of shots, some that are quite anachronistic of the era. Like um, there's a scene when Faye is running and it's basically shot through the sort of spaceship TV, uh, old TV thing. And it's always just different still shots of her like running at camera and then a different still shot of it running across camera. And they're sort of quite old fashioned filming techniques. As you mentioned earlier, like compared to the tracking shot and the soundtrack that goes over that, that gave me some uh, kind of Planet of the Apes vibes. Uh, And I just think the contrast and the variety is ace. and I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I really liked the moments after the, there's the long tracking shot that runs right the way through the town through the basketball game and all this kind of stuff and it's followed up by about 15 seconds of really quick jump cuts as jacks are plugged in and out of the uh, tt patch bay and all that kind of, you know quick tracking shots of vintage analog gear is uh, you know, <laughs> cool yeah you know, it, it, it i'm not gonna lie to you this film does get an extra star for geekness from me um due to i knew being, it would you know, real, real <laughs> I, can, I can see and... a lot of everett in you <laughs> <laughs> i thought it was um kind of admirable in a way how they didn't sort of go down a traditional route of like having the main two's relationship become romantic or something like that i think it could have been incredibly like cheesy and overdone but you still get the sense that there is maybe, you know, something. Yeah, I like the hint at it. I must say, as Mark said, you see, there's there's a little undercurrent, particularly with there's a scene where um, Faye is talking to her sister. Maybe I think or, it's her sister, something like yeah, that. Yeah, with the and child. who's pointing out, oh, yeah. you're with you're with Everett. <laughs> there's a, there's a lot of um, talk about him being sort of the town's you know, a bit of the catch or the ladies' man around the town or something. Oh, I see. I, I yeah. took some little blushy, shy bits from her. Go, oh, shucks. I took that. I took yeah. that scene as like her sister eyeing him up. I didn't think she was. I like. She was wondering about the relationship between them. I thought the sister wanted a bit. Oh, perhaps it's a bit of both. I don't know. <laughs> I you get wrong. the feeling that he's 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 been through the town a little bit, and I, I just like the whole. The, this, there's all this stuff about him sort of feeling like he's a bit a bit more grown up and worldly wise than her and almost that she looks up to him in that way and maybe has those feelings about him in that way, but he'd just never even entertain it. You know what I mean? That's why it has to, why it could never come to the surface. I don't know. But yeah, it's a nice little undercurrent that as Mark says, if they blew the lid off, it would have got cheap. The more we talk about it, I'm, I'm sort of going up on it and I already, as I said, I enjoyed it, but it's, it seems like actually there'd probably be quite a lot to gain from a from a rewatch, which I didn't particularly think at the time, just because it's it is very small and slight in the story it's telling. It's there's yeah. But I think as Louis said earlier, that I think that gives it more weight. I think if it's kind of worldwide, it's it's too big, making it a bit more intimate, I think works for this type of story. I guess ultimately as well, like I'd be interested to see what the director, Andrew Patterson, I think it's his first film. 
I'd be interested yeah. to see what he does next. I'd be interested 100%. to see what both both main actors do next. I don't think either of them have really been in much, but they're both really good. So although I have some criticisms of it, it was certainly good enough that I care what all of them do next. I, yeah, I'd, I'd definitely call it a promising debut. <laughs> um, and yeah, very interested to see what that guy is going to do next because, you know, it's definitely got chops, hasn't he? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, very sure. much so. Shall we, uh, shall we score it? Let's mm-hmm. do some scoring. Anyone want to go first? I go first if you want. Go for it, buddy. I feel like I'm cheating it a little bit, but I'm going to have to leave it at 7 out of 10. I'm getting the vibe that it's a strong 7, but... Yeah, apparently, yeah, strength strength has been disallowed, so <laughs> it's just a 7 out of 10. <laughs> well, right. I'll join you on, on the 7. I think I was actually initially thinking 6, but in talking about it, it's solidified up to a 7. Would have been a 6.5. But yeah... Yeah, and you kind see, of we views diverge somewhat, and yet we wind up on the same. same <laughs> there you go. There you go. Yeah, yeah. I'd have been pushing for a seven point five. Were that? Yeah, I feel like I have to defend the thing after giving it a cheap low score. <laughs> <laughs> seven is good. To be fair, seven is a good score. Science fiction. But, uh, that no, patch bay. That patch yeah, bay. I know the patch bay. <laughs> it could be a nine just for the patch. No, seven it is. Seven it is. She, with she a strong was working prediction. that patch bay very nicely as well. Mark, <laughs> ever the telephonist. <laughs> well, I'm going to take your stance and push it that extra generous mile. I'm going to give it an eight. I think it is kind of lacking on a bit of story, but again, a, a bit of a kind of Scott Pilgrim scenario style over substance and I love the style I think I think I will watch it again because it is like short and that's good and I think I'll get more about out of it a second time round and I think I could enjoy it even more the fact that it is quite obvious and telegraphed from within I don't know 15 minutes is I don't know fine in this case it doesn't it doesn't worry me I enjoyed the ride and I'd watch it again all right. Well, like my comments are pretty similar to yours, Will, except for I probably wouldn't watch it again because I'm not sure I would get much more out of it. I'm sort of excited to see what everyone does next because there's tons of positives, but I'm going to go with a six because ultimately I didn't really care about the plot. Like if I'd turned it off with 10 minutes to go, I don't think it would have. Like Obviously, I wouldn't do that, but I don't think it would have bothered me that much not knowing what happened. I, I just would have guessed. Yeah, I just wasn't invested enough. And yeah, all the positives that you said, agree with them. But I feel like sevens and eights are, I don't know, a bit generous. Mark's always captain negative, so it might as well be me for once. That's it, I'm playing to type. (laughs) Yeah. All right, with that said and done, should we move on to your album pick? Uh, That is Wish Phil by Catherine Wheel from 2009. It It has... Nine songs, it is 40 minutes and 18 seconds long. Feeling 
a legit Wine from 2009, this record? That's no, it's uh, from like 2001 or something. No, it's two. Yeah, no, it's 2000, but it has nine songs. Ah, I misheard. I'm giving you the, all of the details, all of the important bits of the album. Uh, I got to give you a disclaimer on this one, to be honest, which is that for a for a period of about the last three months after I started listening to this record, I'd listened to this record about a year ago when I was having a big Catherine Wheel binge because um, I really love one of their other records. But we could talk about that later if you want. And I listened to this one and um, just gave it a brief listen and then didn't, didn't go back to it. And then a few months ago, I listened to it again a couple of times. And I just got to say, I've been kind of obsessed with this record for a good chunk of the last three months, which is a, which happens to me with about four albums a year. So I'm probably just coming off the tail end of that wave at the moment and being able to, I'm able to speak about it a little bit objectively and non-emotionally. <laughs> I'm just going to completely reserve the right to in... 12 months time have completely changed my opinion of this record and just think it's totally average at that point <laughs> just so you know I, it's just that should in, be everybody's it's just right in, i'm just i'm i'm right at the end of the honeymoon with this one if you'd asked me a month ago i'd have been like this is the greatest record ever made and if anyone says anything different i'm gonna come and kill you anyway i think it's a great record <laughs> and it's a great record and i think it sounds really good it's produced by tim freeze green i don't know if you know who tim freeze green is but he was i'm so do fan he was um, basically um, a kind of uncredited member of Talk Talk through the period where they became brilliant. You know, he had a big hand in Color of Spring, Spirit of Eden and stuff like that. And then he worked with Catherine Wheel on their back half of their career, really, when they Sweet. made the Adam and Eve record. Anyway, so it just sounds really great. I really like the songs on it. And I like that it's this band's pop record, really, when they made a load of shoegazy Gungy stuff beforehand. Mm-hmm. So, it's my intro to it. But tell me what you thought of it. Well, I'm kind of glad you're coming off the tail end of it because I'm not going to be extremely positive, but I'm not going to be extremely negative either. Like, I can absolutely see why this is an album that you'd get obsessed with for like a small chunk of time. And I think I will have done it with similar types of music. And you just mm-hmm. kind of get into this one thing and I think I can see what there is to like about it. Like particularly from a rock perspective, it pushes quite a few of my like buttons. It's got kind of grungy, occasionally has, um, I don't know, reminded me of things like white denim or very occasionally soup furry animals, bush. That's sort of like, I don't know, nineties grunge. And I liked it more when it was in that, headspace than when it went into its kind of more pop oriented bit later on in the album but I think the songs are kind of catchy and they're pretty decent it just I don't know just didn't kind of push it that extra extra bit for me to be kind of better better than than okay I think Uh, well I, I took a while to decide what I thought about this like the first couple of listens it actually left like pretty much no impression on me like good or bad, I didn't dislike it, but nothing particularly stood out. There is one song I quite like, but get into that later. I don't think the songwriting's that great. I so I like quite a lot of the the vibe of the songs, but ultimately I didn't really like it as a record. Like I think there's a couple of songs that I think are just kind of dull. And then there's a lot of songs where I kind of initially half like it. And then I feel like they just don't go anywhere. 
you know, like the very first track is sort of built off one riff, which is fine. That's quite interesting, Andy. You've um, you're in certain spots. You're quote no word for word quoting the one review I've ever read of this, which is a famous Pitchfork review, which said it was the worst album ever made, and that the band oh, it's should not, give it's up. It's not the worst album ever made. <laughs> but they, but some that. of the things they brought up were ex- exactly what you said. What's with this first song built on one riff, and um, oh, the songs right, don't okay. go anywhere, and all this kind of stuff. Well, so it's quite interesting. Of, some of them I don't like. I just think it gets into, it almost sounds like stadium rock, some of it. It just hits like big, boringy choruses. But like Gasoline, I actually don't mind as a song. I don't really know why, track two. Mm-hmm. But it's just... I like Gasoline. There's sort of nothing to it. And like I think track four, what we want to believe in is kind of bad, just sort of bad stadium rock. I don't really know why I like it either, but I, I love it. I think it kicks ass this album. <laughs> I got a preface, uh, which is a few days ago, because we never obviously talk about stuff before reviewing it. We try not to, and me and Will were in the car the other day, and it sort of came up, and I said, oh, I don't know where I stand at the moment, but I feel like you two are not going to like it. And at that point, I thought, I might not particularly like it. I think I'd listened to it sort of one and a half times, and the next time I listened to it, suddenly it's got a kind of magic this this album where that first song is like fabulous like i fucking love that first song like honestly i fucking love this reaction this is top not shocked this is amazing not shocked it's uh yeah, I, I can listen to this over and over. I've probably listened to the album about 10 times in the last <laughs> like, two or three days. I this love his so voice. Funny. It's interesting, the talk talk thing, because he sort of sounds a little bit kind of like a more kind of rounded Mark Hollis a lot yeah, of the time. Yeah, I get that. And a couple of the tracks definitely almost go into that talk talk zone, like the quieter ones, I think, uh Tracks five and six is where it particularly gets into that zone. I really like those. The only the only one I would completely go with Andy on, and I still kind of like it, is What We Want to Believe In, which does have probably the world's worst chorus. It's bad. It's, it's, it's a bad song. It's just it a is. badly written song. <laughs> you wrote a bad song, Billy. <laughs> it's I just kind of like the it. The, the, just the entire melody, chorus and verse, is just so... Twee. I've got to say, one of the reasons I dumped this album on you all was because, just like Mark says, I have absolutely no idea why I love it so much. <laughs> I'm, I'm just, but what Mark just said to me, that, as I said, I'd listened to it a, a year ago and sort of just ummed over it, and then had exactly the same thing where I just, I just decided. It was almost like I just made a decision that, like, this is brilliant. I, I like this one. I this, sort of get that. Like, it just kicks out. Like I say, um, like gasoline, I like as a song, and I really don't know why I like it because I think that chorus is really bad. <laughs> I don't know why I like that song. But... I know, like on paper, the whole thing's pretty bad, isn't it? Some, <laughs> but, yeah, you've you've obviously it, it hasn't worked its magic on you somehow. <laughs> maybe not. Maybe not yet. Maybe, like, not maybe there's, I should have given listening. it ten listens. Oh, we had about. Oh, we had about six. <laughs> but yeah i mean you're right like you're all right that that one we want to believe in is like such a like overly cheesy chorus somehow i just get behind it it's got a little bit of murray lightburn syndrome that like 
the guy can just get away with saying things that I wouldn't accept from other people somehow. Plus, I mean, there are some great lyrics on the record. Well, what We Want yeah, to I Believe mean, In has a great lyric where he says, she preferred herself to me, which I just think is a really lovely idea of, you know, a bad relationship. Um, oh, that, yeah. All of that song has got some brilliant lyrics in it. It's really interesting seeing how divisive such a, what feels like a dead inconsequential record that you should just be able to go you know it's a bit it's it's a bit neither here nor there that like i don't think i've spoken to anyone that's heard this record that i that that just thinks it's all right everyone either loves it or hates it it's quite interesting i Uh, I think it's say before we move on that i do actively like all of that track five i think that's a great song i think that's a great cool song i really like that song i love the outro the album the the album pulls that's got cool lyrics as well whole point for that and like i like that it's kind of it's got a big build through the entire song and it doesn't necessarily like peak its build. Like I was worried it was going to hit a like cheesy chorus by the end of it. Cause it's, no, it's really really un- leaning itself towards it, but it never does. It just has this kind of subtle build throughout. Idle life pulls the same trick for me. I think those two tracks are completely of a piece and they're both like super interesting and cool. I think Idle life's a great tune. Like once you just allow yourself to enjoy the sort of, the thing is, you know, what I yeah, mean? no, like, team Andy on that one. <laughs> I, personally, I don't find that I don't find that song any more like dodge cheese than cuts off Dogman Star. You know what I mean? Which people will defend yeah. to the grave. Yep. Like, listen to that and listen to like the power off Dogman Star. That people be like, ah, oh, it's like one of the greatest records ever made, which is a great record, but it's got a load of proper cheese crap choruses on it. But they're just right for the record sometimes. Do you know what I mean? I think it pulls a neat trick with repetition because usually repetition quite annoys me. And a couple of mentions there of the first song just being the same riff and it's just well repetitive. I mean, that's kind of what I loved about it, but it still has a couple of kind of neat little tricks. I love when it does the rising chord build, yeah, yeah, stop, yeah, yeah. kick in again, and his like great voice just doing the a cappella line. Yeah, you, I didn't even consider that, but you're completely on the money with the, the Murray Lightburn charm. He doesn't sound anything like Murray, but he's got a way with singing and words, which has that immediate charm. It's almost like that fused with like the spirit of Copper Blue by Sugar for me. Yeah, just kind of straight big arena rock with trying to imbue a little bit of smarts into it here and there. That's what that record feels like to me. And I suppose whether that falls flat or not. I mean, Maybe it's a case of not having those kind of shared touchstones. Because I don't, you know, I say I heard a couple of similarities to things, but I wouldn't compare them to them in, in a kind of quality stakes. I think unlike Andy, like some of the, the, the basic rock tenements have pushed more buttons for me. And I enjoyed those bits a bit more. But as you say, you're kind of listing off kind of names and bands that I, I don't know. And I wonder if that is uh, is lessening my my appeal. Did you not just like the production of it in general? Because Louis mentioned the sound and I have to agree. I think it sounds brilliant. Yeah, I was thinking about that because I, I kind of agree. <laughs> Yeah, I think the production is really good. Like things like the the I'm gonna keep referencing all of that because it's the song that I like the most. But like the bass sounds great on that, 
And there's loads of like additional instrumentation that's added in all the time. And I think most of the time that kind of works. Like it certainly doesn't detract from anything. And the kind of the production of it's really nice. It's the, yeah, it's the songwriting that I have an issue with. It's that's not the, fair enough. It's not the production of the album or the um, yeah yeah the addition. I guess it depends whether that whether whether the technical stuff can garner extra points with you, I suppose. Or it definitely does with me. You know, I can people can sell me a pretty bad song if they make it sound great and interesting. Um, so that stuff really helps this record for me. All the funny little found sounds everywhere that you notice on more repeated listens and the fact that it's just really proficiently made. I do have some uh, interesting technical tidbits about this record, if anyone's here. Here's with them. Go. It was it was recorded outside, outdoors, um, and they had to keep stopping to take the drums in whenever it started raining. Wow. Um, I think it's quite That's cool. Nice. Um, it's kind of cool. <laughs> and kind of cool, but an annoying way to record. <laughs> <laughs> apparently, they were a really annoying band on. to work with. Apparently, they were really annoying. Now, the, the singer is Bruce Dickinson's cousin. Um, Rob Dickinson, so that's a little extra fact. Excellent factoid. But um, apparently they were very fussy to work with and they they made the record in America, but there was some bits where they wanted some amp hum, like in, in silent bits of the tunes or just in the background or whatever. So they stuck a mic on an amplifier and they said, no, it doesn't sound right because it's American voltage. So they had them record amp hum in the UK and ship the tapes over so they could put them on the record because they yes, were quality amp hum. Quality um, British voltage. <laughs> it's one of the most pretentious things I've ever heard. <laughs> well, they, they, I think this record was... Because they'd, they'd, they'd had a lot of success with their previous record. I'd, at some point, it's beyond the scope of this meeting. Um, but I'd be interested to hear you guys' views on the album before it. Which What's the album it's called Adam and Eve, and it's it's you know it's known as their legit classic masterpiece record, um, which is why I didn't put that one up because I think it would have been broken my heart a bit too much to hear you tear it to pieces. <laughs> um, but um, they were sort of I think they had a bit of carte blanche to do whatever they wanted because Adam and Eve had been a massive hit um, and was really really well thought of, so they were able to do all this daft stuff. Personally, I think that, that, well, two points about that. A, I came into this record wanting to like it because I love the one before it so much. So that that probably explains my soft view on it. But also, yeah, I think Andy in particular, that record, the earlier record would probably be something you'd like a lot more. Um, it's a much more in-depth kind of less definitely less cheesy less um repetitive stadiumy record it's weird because although i've been pretty negative on the album i will check that out because i don't even off the basis of not liking this record i still sort of i don't i don't necessarily dislike the band like i i sort of yeah don't dislike the sound of it no knowing mark and his yeah, Mark will love His it. yearning to become a walking musical encyclopedia, I would assume that he has already gone hunting down um, that catalogue of these guys once he liked one record by him. Is that right, Mark? Yeah, I've, I've checked out a couple of uh, couple of songs 
Oh, wait, I, 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 the magic wasn't quite there on initial. I haven't tried Adam, Adam and Eve. I think I right, went right back to their first. Oh, the early stuff's all shoegaze. Um, yeah, but it was, it was Ooh, yeah. I'm bored. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through definitely and check more of them out. I, I'm very excited. But yeah, uh, the final thing I wanted to mention, sorry about this album, was because they haven't been mentioned yet. I also think the last two tracks are amazing as well, both of them. Ballad of a Running Man, is it called? Yeah, Ballad of a Running Man took me a few listens to start. Like, even when I really liked the record, that one was putting me off for a bit. But now, again, yeah, I think it's super cool. Straight away, just that opening, and it's a bit more interesting and all over the place structurally. I really liked that one. I did like Ballad of a Running Man. Creme Caramel is super cool. I just love that chorus. Put a brushy, jazzy beat on a tune and Mark's all over it, isn't he? (laughs) <laughs> and your wedding night fires kept me alive <laughs> what Andy a chorus cringe at that lyric <laughs> it, has been it, men- come- it has been mentioned before I know you said you uh, didn't think it'd be mentioned but I mentioned it as a song that I just don't like which one sorry uh, nine Grand and caramel, caramel. yeah caramel. Oh, it's great I think it's a cool job. yeah shall we uh, crack up the scoring quick uh, I think you might have volunteered, Mark. It's a nine out of ten for me. Wow, straight out of the pack. Absolutely love it. Well pleased that uh, Louis brought it to the table. Well, Mark has actually outdone me. You know, I was going to give well an eight point five would be the the real score. Um, but now I'm going to go eight. Just like I say, because I'm coming off the back of that wave, I've probably listened to this album 40 times in the last two months, you know. Um, so, and also I need somewhere to go, you know, because I think there are records that are better than it. If I give it nine, then it's, it's really getting up there. So yeah, eight out of 10 for me. I'm going to make a prediction and go in what I think is going to be descending order. I'm going to give it a berry, say five out of 10 for me. I think it has hallmarks of things that I like. But I think as we've talked about, I've agreed more and more with Andy. I think just that core element of songwriting isn't there and kind of all the production in the world doesn't fix it for me in this case. Um, I don't dislike the sound at all. I think you're right that it does sound good, but it doesn't It doesn't elevate it more than right in the middle for me. Your prediction's going to be wrong, Will. <laughs> Holy moly. Um, I'm going to go five as well. I'm, I'm not... I'm not dragging it up any further, don't worry. But yeah, Berry feels right. Like it's, um, <laughs> if I compare it to Berry, I actually think the songwriting's better with Matt Berry. And the production is far better on this, although the production was fine on Berry. <laughs> so uh, it gets a Berry. <laughs> I've said Berry too many times in that. <laughs> we gave, so we I gave, explained the very thing to me very quickly. We gave Matt Berry five out of ten, and from now on, that is the yardstick of everything being average. Oh, okay. Matt Berry was, was average. His music's awful. Sorry. <laughs> no, uh, it's a five right. out I of ten. I came on the wrong podcast. Specifically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's five out of ten. give him a five out of ten. And also, I've listened, I've listened to a bit of Berry, and the one we reviewed, I think, is the worst. <laughs> <laughs> Our entire reality is built on the fact that Berry... Marks the middle of all scales. Right. right okay. average. Everything is average about it. <laughs> if you shatter that, you shatter us. <laughs> all right. Now all the album is said and done. We'll move on to your top five list. And 
as it was presented to me, your top five list was the top five big stylistic changes. That leaves quite a lot of room for interpretation. And I think my list embraces that interpretation. Uh, who wants to kick us off? I'm happy to go. Right. So my number five. Just going to try something here. This is, this is a new thing to the podcast. I, I'll never be able to say it as well as him. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, Mr. Timothy Dalton. The first question you ask a producer is, what do you want of me? Do you want me to carry on in the vein that's been set? Or do you want to set off on a new course? The safe, the easy answer is to say, stick with it as it is. In which case, I guess I'd have said no. Roger was brilliant at what he did, but I couldn't simply copy what he'd done. The movies have become somewhat pastiche. Before you go too long, you've, you've become a parody of yourself. You've lost depth, you've lost texture, you've lost contradictions. You start to get shallow. What makes these movies work? What is it that got them going? You've got to go back to the beginning. He was a hero who murdered in cold blood. Bam, 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 bam. <laughs> the dirtiest, toughest, meanest, nastiest, brutalist hero we've ever seen. This is what. My goodness, if anybody listened to this podcast, that would be a copyright nightmare, but nobody does, so who cares? <laughs> Manny's I think that got, says it all. Manny's got a good voice. Hasn't he, though? I know that was a bit lengthy, but I, I can cut him short. It's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's a beautiful monologue. But yeah, obviously. Um, yeah, what's your pick, the, sorry? Uh, <laughs> so it's, uh, to be honest, like Bond in general, but I, the particular switch between Roger Moore and Timothy Dalton, they were basically comedy films. He brought them back to, uh, he basically did what everyone said Daniel Craig did for Casino Royale. 20 years before and arguably better um and he just explained why so we can move on good choice man uh, andy do you want to go next sure i've gone for a director first pick which is george miller and i've well actually i could pretty much pick his entire filmography uh it's a bloody in. great shout yeah really i mean yeah i mean he starts off with Mad Max and Mad Max 2 and Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome as a director. Um, bit of a break. He directed a couple of things in the middle, like Witches of Eastwick, which I've watched, and a couple of other things that I haven't. Um, but stylistically, at least in the same ballpark. Uh, but then he produces and is the writer of Babe, which feels a bit weird. And then, <laughs> and then steps into the shoes to direct Babe Pig in the City, uh, which, he, which he follows up with Happy Feet and Happy Feet 2. <laughs> then Sounds like a more classic. Yeah. I haven't seen Happy Feet 2, but Happy Feet is... <laughs> I mean, I, I've winner. got a lot, a lot of love for Babe and Babe Pig in the City. But <laughs> Sounds I think like given a man the choice, like... I would much rather watch Happy Feet than Mad Max 2 oh, at, any, this, oh, at this moment day. in my life. However, Definitely. I do like that he then makes Mad Max Fury Road, heard, yeah. <laughs> which, <laughs> which I actually surprisingly quite like. 
<laughs> and I'm kind of looking forward to the uh, the sequel to that, <laughs> which is just mad choices. Mad. Yeah, it's a, it's a top choice, actually. Uh, so, yeah, keen on that. That's my... Uh, that's a very good choice. That's my first pick. Uh, okay, I'll go next. I did. I found this quite quite difficult to pull a list together, and I worry that some of mine are a little bit, maybe a little bit on the nose sometimes. So I'm going to start with one of my uh, most obvious ones, and say the Beatles. I mean, you could go all the way back to their like uh, uh, like skiffle band days, but even just from their sort of early jangle pop to their later more kind of cerebral art art rock and art pop i think without that transition they may have just faded in with the rest of the similar kind of rock and roll bands of the of the mid 60s but because of their evolution i think that's what has uh, set them apart and kept them in history for all these times yeah completely agree good pick like the the psychedelia is uh I mean, kind of literally for them. Um, it's the thing that just has a massive uh, lift to all their like later output. Yeah, it's the second half of their career that I really, really love from the Beatles. Cool. Well, if I, if you don't mind me jumping in, I'm going to do so because I'm going to bogart Will's Will's pick a little bit just because it's related. Mark, you bogart don't mind, do you? Cool. Because I was going to say my number five kind of off track you've been going some pretty um wide view things one of my big favorite stylistic changes is that bit in a day in the life when it goes woke up got out of bed <laughs> where it just completely nice. cuts to the other track there you go little small one as mine because it's and in a way Great microcosmically so, sums up what i studied just that said. for, for a levels i did as well because yeah. we were in school at the same time um but i i think that's cool like I, I never really considered it down to that micro scale but you're right like just that on its own completely transforms that song from i think either the a or b section on their own would be a fine Beatles song but the weird juxtaposition of them together elevates I, it a bit yeah you know, i guess that kind of demonstrates exactly what you were just saying that they were built in 19 yeah it was sergeant pepper 67 all right, like I think so. Back then, the the thought to, and ability, and I suppose just um, the moxie to just do stuff like that. Say, so just cut into another tune halfway through, and then back. Like, I guess it's the privilege of being the biggest band in the world. So sort of do what well, you yeah. want. Just they, we were lucky you know, they that still what wanted, they wanted to sell to records, do. though. They, they they were never saying, "Oh, we'll you know turn our back on people." They still yeah. wanted. To. So, but yeah, Thank amazing, you. amazing. Lovely jubbly. Um, if that was your number five, Louis, then I think that brings us back round to Mark. Yes. So yeah. my number four, it's kind of a bit of a combination of a macro one and and also a massive change as well at the time, which is the uh, switch from black and white to Technicolor in The Wizard of Oz. Nice. Ooh. Like um, I need to find another one. Now, it wasn't, it wasn't the first colour film, but I think it was probably the first kind of big commercial success when that happens and it obviously transitions within the film itself and quite simply the uh the movie wouldn't have worked solely in black and white or solely in technicolor so that stylistic switch works a treat 
and just color coming in in general is is pretty huge, I guess. Yeah, good pick. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's a uh, quality pick. Sorry, Andy, you go ahead, bud. My next pick is one that I regretted not mentioning last week. So my next pick is Wes Borland with Crystal Machete, which is an album I like quite a lot. And it definitely falls into the, like, I can't really explain why I like it. But yeah, play with Limp Biscuit. I really like him as a person. When you're playing a sort of shitty rap rock thing, and everybody is dressed in a certain way and you're the one who says like i don't have any guitar kind of space to do anything creative so i'm just gonna come with weird makeup and weird outfits and treat it as a performance piece i like that anyway but i like that he made a solo album which is kind of don't know like a sort of post-rock electronic album i think he said it was a he thought of it as a like score to a like eighties film that didn't exist, and it's <laughs> it's just super cool. Well, is that actually all right? Yeah, I really I like it. it. Crystal genuinely Machete, really, it's got genuinely the really only, like it. The only Wes Borland stuff I know of is that big dumb face that he brought out while he was in Limp. But did you ever hear that? No, um, it's like a mis- it's like the worst Mister Bungle ripoff ever. <laughs> um, called Duke Lion Fights the Terror and his band was called Big Dumb Face. Oh, it's a great name. It's really <laughs> bad. But somehow <laughs> I don't know, it's got a, a bit of charm because it's 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 just it's just weird comedy vocal effects and I can't de- I can't describe it. It's such a strange record. It's not very good. So I never checked out his other solo stuff. But I you're mean, right, I... he was always the interesting guy in that band. For sure. And he's... I a heck of a guitar player. Yeah, and which he doesn't utilise at almost any point on Crystal Mache. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, yeah, I, don't, I don't mind his distancing from Limp Bizkit. That's fine. Yeah, I think post-rock is kind of right, but there's a lot of sort of electronic-y drone bits as well in it. There's no normal vocals. I think there's like a little bit of like robot voice thrown in there, but pretty, pretty much instrumental. <laughs> yeah, it's just good fun. I, I don't know why I like it. I do really like it. But yeah, massive stylistic change for him. So uh, for that reason, makes the list. Cool. Good choice. Uh, Right. For my next choice, it could be one of two things, but I'm going to pick one specifically, and that is Castlevania Symphony of the Night. And the stylistic change was the move from like complete linear gameplay to what is now called Metroidvania of having open world games in a kind of 2D sphere. They became 3D later on, but they're still best in 2D. And it's probably my favorite like type of game. It's become very popular again and lots of people are making them. But I think that is because the format is super endearing and just giving you that little bit of extra freedom from a normal kind of 2D platformer I think is, yeah, is awesome. Love the exploration of it and item getting and all that good stuff. I like the pick, but my only question would be, why is Symphony of the Night? Because it feels like it was done prior with Super Metroid. And Well, I think Symphony of the Night and Super Metroid came out in the same year. I think Symphony of the Night is probably a direct response to Super Metroid. 
but even the Metroids previous to Super Metroid were much more linear. And they were the two games that kind of, it's why their names are smashed together. I don't know. I think, yeah, Sips in for the Night, I think it's kind of widely regarded as being the first, but I don't know, to be honest. I just picked one arbitrarily. Anyway, that's my pick. I mean, good pick, aside from ignoring... Oh, yeah. Good pick. Yeah, I hadn't the, even thought of putting doing games. I'm now racking my brains for replacing some of my dull things with break, with game-based stuff. Um, <laughs> but that will we'll already have more anyway. That's me then. Um, I'm going to go with... It's a really lame sad one. I'm going to go with William Gibson transitioning from science fiction writing into real-world uh, current time set techno thrillers. Well, I've never read um, any William Gibson that's not sci-fi. Well, he's made, he's done three novels of them. And it really ended up cementing him as more than just a genre writer. Um, even though even though he's kind of doing the same thing, he still kind of predicts the future in them. You know what I mean? Um, it's it's the trilogy, um, which is all, it's got the Blue Ant trilogy, most people call it. And it's sort of high-tech, bleeding-edge corporation world, I suppose. And they're just really, really good. And they they still they still talk about things that two years later happened. You know, what I mean, there's one that's talking about sort of the democratization of GPS technology and things that would happen with it. And two years later, the phones all came out that were putting putting overlays onto the world and all this kind of stuff. Um, it's still very quite prophetic. How, yeah, he's very good with it. And the books are just really great. And as much as I love his old science fiction stuff, I I really think they're probably his most interesting um work um, i think so, i yeah. might have read one because i think you got me one pattern maybe for my birthday some yeah. 10 years ago um what's the first book called pattern recognition yes it was yeah pattern recognition and it was it yeah, was top really good. yeah yeah they're great books uh, they make a really good trilogy the um spook country it's very 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 good yeah they're all good Guess yeah, yeah it's surprisingly good at being like very predictive of major future future technological things did anyone ever see that tv program called wild palms no um it's weird it came out after there was someone trying to do a sort of twin peaksy vibe ripoff thing um can't remember who directed it um I only managed to watch about half of it because it's it's got all the bad stuff about David Lynch and not really any of the good stuff. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but William Gibson does a cameo in it and he turns up and sort of plays himself and it's at some party of rich people in California. Says, <laughs> this is William Gibson. He coined the term cyberspace and he goes, and the world won't let me forget it. Ten out of ten, worth it just for that. Yeah, good stuff. <laughs> Well, after all of that, my number three is a massive letdown, I'm afraid. And it's just uh, Fleetwood <laughs> Mac. You know, there's, there's two or three examples you could take. They started off as a very, very straight blues band. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they went into sort of 70s soft rock. And then they went into full-on commercial pop music. And they do all of them really, really well. <laughs> like, Agreed. <laughs> which, uh, which is the remarkable thing, really. I think it's all well and good having stylistic changes, but actually, uh, I mean, obviously, he I don't know, he may come up, but like someone like Bowie 
Well, that's the thing. Someone like Bowie did it a lot. And many would argue that he wasn't always successful. He took those leaps and he didn't always nail them. I think Fleetwood Mac very much did, you know, wherever they go. But there's there's huge stylistic changes. If you listen to Rumours and then go back and listen to uh, Peter Green's Fleetwood Mac, you wouldn't think it's the same band at all. Yeah, massive. <laughs> so if you're talking big stylistic changes, they're absolutely all over it. So I, I couldn't uh, leave them out. Yeah, no, fair play. I think... Uh... I think it's a really good choice. My, I think Rumours represents like my period of Fleetwood Mac Rumours. They're sort of the albums around it that I would absolutely stick to. Um, but I think you're right. I think they're really good in all of their like guises. Cool. Um, Andy? Number three, I've gone with uh, Donald Glover slash Childish Gambino. Uh, Awaken My Love. Uh, I like the album quite a bit. Uh, it's not doing anything particularly new i really like donald glover anyway i think he's like outstandingly creative you know i think he's a good actor his stand-up's good his series atlanta is one of my favorite most recent series but yeah his music career is basically based around him being a like his hip-hop like his rapper and then he released this kind of r&b soul album like the the comparative singer vibes that I get is like Macy Gray. <laughs> um, I'm not saying his voice is outstanding, but there is definitely like something to it. Character um, to it. Yeah, for sure. And I think a couple of songs on that album are just superb. Um, I think it's called Me and I should have pulled it up so I could reference it, but I haven't. So I think it's the first track's called Me and, Me and Your Mama or something like that. Um, but yeah, I think the first track is Ace. But yeah, it's just, it's such a departure from everything that he's done before. Like, I don't think anybody had heard him sing before he did that album, let alone like the stylistic choice that he did to replay, uh, to release it. And like he was in Community, which I know Will's watched. I don't know if anyone else has. But the guy who does the music for Community, Ludwig Goranson, like wrote and produced the album with him and plays two thirds of the instruments on it. And he's since gone on to do, like he did the music for Ten and, and yeah, like it's crazy. Major. I didn't know he'd, I didn't know he'd done Community. Yeah, sweet. Uh, that could be a pick as well, frankly. Yeah, yeah. I, I think like I think he's ace. Like I get the feeling that his like stamp is all over that album. Uh, I think his film music superb. He, yeah, he started off on Community and did like the soundtrack for New Girl and stuff like that, and then. Good on him. Uh, it's also produced like, yeah, major albums and has moved into like film music where he's uh, like he did the music for Black Panther, I think, as well. And um, yeah, I think it's film music's great also. So I get the feeling that he had a massive influence on the album. But but yeah, stylistically, massive change. Yeah. That's why it goes in at number three. I'm also a big fan of uh, of Donald Glover think he's a cool guy it's a cool choice atlanta uh, is so good like if you haven't seen it i'd just so recommend it it's so it has good. been on my like forever to watch list but one day it's outstanding uh right okay um i'm gonna pick one which is sort of a reverse choice it's a change from positive to negative in my eyes um so my number three is genesis 
post Gabriel nice. Genesis. <laughs> I am all for the complete self-indulgent folk prog rock. I mean, I think Selling England by the Pound is it's a near perfect album. Agreed. Uh, it runs from start it. to finish like a story. It's superb. And then and then it changed and they became a big 80s bombastic sort of pop group and I didn't like it anymore. Yeah, I'm going to I'm doing fist in the air for Will's pick there because I totally agree. Um although that um Trick of the Tail record, the first one they did without him isn't all that bad. Oh, I like quite a lot. It's still a Genesis record, but yeah, but you're right. Selling England by the Pound is is there. Is a like crowning achievement, but yeah. it's just, it's funny because I think there will be many people who know Genesis, but don't won't have heard of the like first half of their career. No Genesis by Phil Collins. Exactly that, and, yeah. and will only know that that's what they are. And it's it's sort of strange they didn't just change their name. I guess Genesis has kudos, but they were going for such a different audience from where they started. It's a surprise they just weren't a different band. I'm almost tempted to jump in and make my next pick, Peter Gabriel's stylistic changes in the 80s, because um, he did exactly the same thing. But really weird niche one, but inspired by um, the conversation that you guys just had about film scoring stuff. It's a weird one. Has anybody watched the Matt Groening most recent Disenchantment? I watched the first watch series, a bit of it. didn't yeah. watch the second. It's not all that great. The yeah. music's good. The music's dead good. You know who wrote the music? Mark nope. Mothersbaugh from Devo. Um, well, I think that's quite show. a stylistic change. <laughs> that is. Um, it wouldn't have been what I'd guessed. Yeah. Even, I mean, and even before that, I mean, Devo had a massive stylistic change after about three records anyway, when they went from being a new wave band into a synth pop, one of the first synth pop bands. Mm-hmm. Um, and Mother's Bow was obviously the driving force behind it. And then the fact that he's gone off and become a... There you go. Big I thought that was guy. quite an interesting one. He did a, a bunch of the early Wes Anderson oh, movies did he? as well. I had no idea. Um, he did like Aquatic, right. for like... example, and oh, yeah, Tenenbaums, awesome. that kind of stuff. Oh, really? Which... Yep. There you go. All right, that cements my point. I'm glad you brought that yeah, up. Yeah, no, so absolutely. It's tenuous, but that cements my point for you. It was a it's good sad. point anyway. Great oh, choice. I'm, yeah, I'm loving we've had uh, two film music mentions. For sure. Um, my number two is a uh, latter-era Scott Walker because uh, I, just, I think it's a, a kind of crazy change when you put it into context. He was... Super commercial Walker Brothers, all his solo records. Basically, he sums up easy listening. And then he came back after many years and just comes in with this abrasive, avant-garde, like nightmarish soundscape (laughs) stuff, which basically sounds like a horror movie. And for a guy who effectively was easy listening, I think that's a, a huge stylistic change and pretty interesting and brave of him. Yeah, that's a fantastic shout, Mark. I I knew that was going to be on your list, to be fair. Um, and it's, it's there, <laughs> rightly so. Um, Sometimes you've got to be predictable. Right, yeah, it's, it's <laughs> totally right. If it wasn't, if it wasn't there, then it, there'd have been a gaping hole. But you're right. It's um, I can't think of a bigger, actually, a bigger stylistic change. In, and he could have been doing anything beforehand. But when you go to recording yourself yeah, in cow exactly. carcasses with a baseball bat. <laughs> 
It's yeah. a stylistic change from pretty much anything. <laughs> yeah. From crooner to till is a is a is a gap. Watching like the making of till is is mad. Like it just looks like a man losing his mind. <laughs> I haven't seen that, it's you know. I've got to check that out. It's incredible. Like yeah, till it's not even anywhere near as crazy as the stuff that came after. It, it's, it's not the worst it gets now. It's just yeah, the obsession with yeah, like punching this meat to make a particular sound <laughs> is incredible <laughs> like oh we can spend two hours on this because this sound isn't right this isn't the meat <laughs> punching sound i wanted you need a different meat incredible is it my Great. fists or the cow <laughs> yeah let's put some different fists in here see if that makes the difference it'll be my hulk hand yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, excellent choice, Mark. Yeah, great, great pick. Great pick. I've gone back to directors for number two. Um, similar to George Miller. I don't know why they're ordered like this, but uh, but I've gone for Matthew Vaughan, um, who started off, he was a producer on Lockstock um, and Snatch and Mean Machine, and then he went and made Layer Cake, which I think is probably the best for me of those like little glut of British gangster films, but it's like he got an education in something and then made the best version of it and then decided never to do that again. <laughs> like immediately went and made Stardust. But yeah, seeing that it had like De Niro in it, I thought like, yeah, Matt, you know, Matthew Fawn directing uh, De Niro, that makes sense. There's going to be a, you know, a lot of killings in this and, gangster vibes not exactly and then and then also from that he seems to exclusively make like kind of comic book adaptations but kind of cheesy slightly funny comic book adaptations he did like kick-ass and then he did like what's it called the kingsman to do kingsman as well yeah which I actually don't mind either. I just think it's weird to build your career up in one particular area and then just to not bother with that for the rest of your career. <laughs> uh, okay, so I think, is that my number two? For my number two, I'm going to go for an album to satisfy Andy's need. And it's going to be Anatomy of by Between the Buried and Me, who in their traditional guise are a somewhat heavy prog metal band. But the anatomy of is them covering their inspirations. And although some of them are a bit on the nose, most of them are not your usual metal fare. And they play them, they they don't try and put a metal spin on them. They're like genuine covers of the original songs. Um, There are things like Bicycle by Queen. Otherwise, my memory is deserting me now. But yeah, it's a, it's a, from a band who have a, quite a genre-based um, style and is quite abrasive. They do some uh, surprisingly kind of sweeping pop versions or, or uh, original kind of cover versions of the songs that have inspired them. Um, and I think it's cool. That's my number two. That's a sound pick, Will. I'm going to, yeah, it's hard to... Uh... Hard to know much about it, but I'm actually going to go and listen to it because it sounds like sounds like something I want to hear. Um, <laughs> cool. Um, 
um then i was going to do one that was just sort of like something i like but i think instead i'm going to have something else i go with paul simon releasing graceland incorporating lots of african music into his style for the first time um kind of wish he'd released the album after it um first um released rhythm of the saints which is the real embracing of all that but the stylistic change came with graceland um if you back to back listen to the album before it hearts and bones and then graceland it really hammers home what a big change it is and the sort of impact it had on mainstream music at that time as well um sort of opening it up and bringing that music to the attention of the mainstream in lots of ways i think is a a big stylistic change that caused big stylistic changes over time completely completely on board with you there buddy agreed good pick all right so i so i go time for you pick number one all right so it's a, it's a complete complete cheat but will's already done it so it's fine it's kind of a similar notion to the the bonds pick and the fleetwood mac one really just stylistic change over many many years keeping a franchise kind of fresh and relevant and and original i guess which is the legend of zelda art styles alone you could go for the amount of different art styles it had it has had is crazy really yeah wind waker probably the largest example of it but then it's it's not even just that i mean they've got the breath of the wild open world thing that's another massive stylistic change tonal changes all over the place i think changes of tone and changes of style are kind of they can sort of go one in the one in the same really aren't they but yeah i just i couldn't get away from the fact if i'm thinking about something that constantly refreshes and changes its style even though the basic tenements are the same mm-hmm. like i've got to go with zelda thanks cool pick yeah um, i'm with you uh, my number one is probably the most uh, difficult to explain, so I'll try and do it really briefly. But I'm going to go with Robin Williams. Um, and it is one particular year, which was 2002. Uh, specifically, one-hour photo. But Yeah, Robin good pick. Will- yeah, I really like that film, and I don't think it got a lot of like critical... Like, I thought it was all right. On- I really like it. Like, and also I really like Robin Williams in it, and it's such a non-Robin Williams role. And in the same year, he made Insomnia, the uh, Christopher Nolan film, mm-hmm. and another film that I've not seen, but I understand is kind of doing the same thing. Like, Robin Williams is incredibly likable as a person. I think that translates to all of his characters. I think One Hour Photo was a huge departure from that. Like. I think his character is presented initially as like sort of likable loner who's a little bit weird, but, um, and as the film goes on, obviously for anyone who's seen it, (laughs) um, like his character is quite like uncomfortable and it is essentially kind of the villain of the piece. A bit more insidious. Yeah. And in insomnia, he is literally the villain. Um, I just think it's massive that he showed that kind of range to his acting. Like he's done, he's built an entire career and a long career as well, like based on those tenements of it. Like him being a 
a likable character and you sort of instantly watch Robin Williams and you have that sort of connection. It doesn't matter what character he's playing. Like he, he has that sort of charm and, uh, and yeah, to, to move to playing characters that have greater them or just literally being the villain, I think is a like massive stylistic change for him and actually showed that he's a genuinely good actor who has that sort of range to him. So yeah, Agreed. I think I think it's it's less obvious than all of my other choices, but um, yeah, it's I, I one like of the reasons one of the reasons that I that I like him. I I, I think Robin Williams was was genuinely good, who maybe got a little bit typecast. Strong choice, I think. Any opportunity to give that man his dues are good because I love Robin Williams. It's a great sure. choice, and it is somewhat stolen my thunder because I've gone for a similar thing, but I don't think my pick is as strong. There were a couple of names that kind of filled that slot, but the idea of having a comedian doing a serious role. Can I guess? You can guess. I'm going to go Adam Sandler, Punch Drunk Love. 10 points. And the reason I settled on Adam Sandler and Punch Drunk Love is because of how little time I have for Adam Sandler outside of this film. (laughs) But to his credit, I think he delivers a performance sort of worthy of the film that he's in. I think he is good in it. It's not a good film, despite him being in it. Um, it kind of makes me wish he'd have done that a bit more often in his career. But to be frank, it's not like I'm jonesing after <laughs> top he's quality re- Sandler. He's really good in uh, Uncut Gems as well. I haven't seen that one, but that uh, uh, I'd, re- I'd recommend I thought, it. I thought, thought the same kind of thought, thing. Thought it was really good. But yeah, Punch of Love. John Bryan as well does the music, and I love the soundtrack to Punch of Love. It's, well, your Robin uh, Williams speech kind of, uh, I don't know, it was kind of stronger. So. <laughs> I'm, I'm backing you up, buddy. I really like Punch of Love. Yeah, yeah, I think r- it's a really uh, good film. It is a really good film. And as I say, I think he is good in it. So fair play to him. Uh, music one for me to finish up, which is um, Talk Talk released in Spirit of Eden, which is sort of the culmination of a massive stylistic change of I can't think of an earlier example of a band being huge chart topping you know carte blanche giving a blank check for a record and coming back and making something so unmarketable (laughs) and deliberately just saying we're not going to make your pop records Um, and they make an hour of sort of very ambient textural Stuff. I mean, whether you like the record or not, which I happen to love it. It sort of Definitely was a bit a huge of a, departure. Yeah, and a bit of a probably a watershed moment in that 1980s, loads of money being thrown at bands kind of thing because lots of money was lost on it, big legal battles and all this kind of stuff. And Mark Hollis just continued to go off and went further into all that kind of music. I think, yeah, I just think it's really cool and sort of invented a whole genre really um, at that point of all that post-Rocky stuff. I don't think would really exist without that album. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's my Ace. my last one. Yeah. I had, I had you banked for that one. So I, I was considering it as well, but I strongly thought you might go for it. Yeah. Rightly, rightly so. Absolutely. It's funny because I feel like the, the example of Radiohead and Kid A is always the one that's cited as like kind of commercial to like 
you know, avant-garde leap. And yeah, they they did it years before and and more so, to be honest. I think so. I think it's a bigger a bigger change, if nothing else. You know, I think I think it is. Yeah, absolutely. Tuk Tuk were far more a chart band. You know, mm-hmm. they were. A, well, they did eighties pop basically, didn't they? As their first couple of records could be Duran Duran records. Yeah, you, you hear a bit of a change in um, Color of Spring, which is a brilliant record too. And then Spirit of Eden is is way more further from center than Kid A. I would say. I think that's a, a very strong number one. I think that wraps up our chat for the evening. Uh, so next week is going to be my choices. My film is going to be the newly released Black Widow film. I think because we've not necessarily done one in a while, is going to be one that I think I might have to defend a little bit. Uh, it's called And the Battle Begun by RX Bandits. And my top five list could be a tricky one um but it is going to be the top five songs that are made by their build right well with that said that's all from us at screen and needle join us next week we'll speak about another film another album and another top five list bye-bye